How we doing? Everybody good? Good. My name is Blake Pitts. I am the pastor at LifePoint Church. And yeah. All right. Uh, I'm the pastor at LifePoint Church. Uh, it's in Seneca, about, about 10 minutes or so from here. And it is, uh, we are absolutely excited to be here and to be able to share with you tonight. We've got a lot to talk about, so we're going to get right to it. Your leadership team, the leadership team of FCA, has asked me tonight to talk about the church and the importance of the church and the function of the church. And, and so what I want to do tonight is I want to talk about just that. In fact, I have, I've, I have not, I've been around Clemson for a lot of years now. Um, I was graduated in 03, was a part of FCA when I was here at Clemson, and uh, been a, had a lot of interaction with, with several of the leadership teams uh, that were over FCA throughout the years, and I've never met a group of people that were as passionate about the local church uh, as this group of people. And it shows, because here we are, the second FCA of the year, and they asked me to speak about the local church and the importance of the local church. There's a couple of reasons why I think that's true. Uh, one is they want everybody in here, everybody that's associated with FCA, they don't want FCA to become your church. They want it to supplement your church and to, to, to be a, a part of your Christian growth, but not to be all of your Christian growth. And we'll talk about that um, in, in, why in, in a few minutes. But there's a lot of you here that maybe you're a freshman and you hadn't really thought about being a part of a church. I mean, FCA will, FCA will be my church. This is my church. they got small groups. they got a, a large group. I mean, this will be my church. But I think what you'll find out tonight is that it's important that you're a part of a local church. There's some of you in here where you may be a senior, all right, and you're about to leave to go wherever in December and May. You're going to graduate, and you're going to go just you know, wherever you're going to move. And, and if finding a church has not been important to you here, it's probably not going to be important to you there and you're not going to prioritize it in the way that you should wherever you go and so uh, they wanted to make sure starting off FCA that the church was important and that, that word church is an interesting word isn't it um, in fact I don't think there is a more polar maybe other than the name Jesus there's not a more polarizing word than the word church for some of you when I say that your the feelings that come that dwell up are, are probably wildly positive right Church is where you found Jesus. Church is where you found community. It's where you found uh, deep meaning and relationships. And so you, when, when you hear the word church, man, you, you love the church. That's not everybody's experience with the church. For some of you, when I say church, you have feelings that are wildly negative. Maybe you've been hurt in the church by a pastor or a leader or by people or by gossip. Maybe you've been lied to. Maybe you've been misled. Maybe you've been taken advantage of. Or maybe there's been some super Christians in the churches that you were in that looked down on you and said, hey, what you're doing, you're not worthy enough to be here. There are all kinds of different ideas about church, isn't there? You may have different ideas. I bet there are a hundred different ideas about what the word church really means. Is it a, a building? Is it a people? Is it a hierarchy? Is it a religious organization? Like some of you might think, I'm not really even sure what the church is. All I know is that they can't agree on anything. Right? That's why there are a hundred different denominations because it always seems like the church can't agree. They're always fighting. We're known more for what we're fighting than what we're unified with. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to define the word 
church and not the way that that you or you or you or us or me even would define it, but the way Jesus defines the word church. The first time we see that word church in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is having a conversation with a guy named Peter. And he asked Peter, hey, who do people say I am? And Peter responds, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus, or Jesus says to Peter, he says, you're right. What you said has not been revealed to you by man, but by God in heaven. And, and Peter, on you, I will build my church. On this rock, I will build my church. There it is. There's our word. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. That word church is the Greek word ekklesia. In fact, what that word means, what that Greek word means is those who have been called out. A group of people who have been called out for a specific purpose. In fact, that word ekklesia is not even uh, an inherently religious word. In fact, they use that word ekklesia when they called out military men to fight a war. It is a group of people who have been called out for a specific purpose. The Hebrew word for ekklesia is the word edah. It means to bear witness. So what a beautiful description Jesus gives us of the church. It's a group of people who have been called out to bear witness for a specific purpose and that have a specific identity. And this is one of my favorite prophecies of Jesus, that he will build his church. And we see the beginning of st stages of this when Peter stands up at Pentecost. If you haven't read the book of Acts, you need to re read the book of Acts. Peter, the same guy that he said, I will build my church. He, he stands up at Pentecost when a bunch of Israelites were gathered around and he begins to preach the gospel and 3,000 people get saved that day. And they go out to their different cities and they begin to spread the gospel. It's known as the birthday of the church. And as the people went back to their homes, they went back to their cities and their towns, they begin to meet from house to house. And they studied the word together. They ate meals together. They partook in the Lord's Supper together. And as time forget, progressed, the word of God spread and the movement got momentum and people started to come to know Jesus. And it, as it got bigger and bigger and bigger and more influential, and as more people became Christians, uh, the Romans started to get a little weary of this small Jewish sect. And they began to persecute the church. And so the church in early stages was not this church like this where we could come in here and have a band and have allowed speakers and have a, we couldn't do this back then. They met from house to house. Many times they had to hide or they would be arrested or killed. To avoid persecution, they had to take the church underground. And in 313 AD, something crazy happened. The government that had been persecuting the church legalized it. In fact, Constantine, which, is, uh, which was the emperor of Rome, he became a Christian. And all of a sudden, what had to take place underground in secret now became uh, very public. And so the, the Roman citizens that, that, uh, that came into the church, that became Christians, brought their idea, their pagan ideas of church into the church, like ornate clothing and these big, huge buildings. And they began to build these houses of worship. They called them basilicas. In fact, the German word for a basilica is Kirsch. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It means house of the Lord. It's where we get our English word church. 
And here's where we have the disconnect. Is that what Jesus meant when he said ecclesia is not what we mean when we say church. The word church, when it was translated in Matthew chapter 16, instead of being translated as ecclesia, a group of people who have been called out for a specific purpose and with a specific identity, was now a building. The house of the Lord, which is good and all, but it's not, it wasn't the point. You see, there's a huge difference between a church and an ecclesia. You can lock the doors of a church. You can't lock the doors of an ecclesia. And very quickly after Christianity became legal, Christianity went from a movement to a monument. It went from a, the faces of people who were coming to know Jesus to becoming a place where people came and consumed and left. You see, there's a huge difference between a church and an ecclesia. And I would say that many people who have been turned off by Christianity are turned off because we have lost our sense of purpose and mission and traded it in for the idea that we can isolate this thing called church from the rest of our lives and feel really good about ourselves when we sit in rows and raise our hands and sing songs and listen to a preacher and then walk out and live our own lives. And this affects nothing else. And so if you're at FCA tonight and you're thinking, man, this will just be my church. If this is what you think church is, then you're right. You don't need another church. You can come to FCA and you can consume and you can listen to good songs and you can listen to a preacher and you can go back to your dorm rooms and live your life. You're right. You don't need anything else. But if we want to be the ecclesia of Jesus... If we want to be the people who have been called out for a specific purpose with a specific identity to bear witness to his name, then church has to become more than just coming and getting our coffee on the way in and consuming and going home. So what I want to do tonight is I want to give you a couple of functions of the church. And I want, I want to try to explain why it's so important for you to be a part of a church. Now, FCA has a lot of the functions of a church, right? You, go, you come here and you listen, like this is part, we, got, we gather together in large groups, right? We um, get together in small groups, that's what they were, that's what uh, Emmy made an announcement about a while ago, like all those things are really good. But I think it has to go deeper than that. Let me give you, let me give you a couple of reasons, uh, a couple of functions of the church. Um, if you've been at LifePoint the last couple of weeks, um, it's be pretty convenient. We've actually talked about the church, and you're going to hear some familiar stuff. Um, uh, but you know, it's always good for us to hear again. And you know, this will be your booster shot, for the lack of a better term. Okay. Okay. Two things, two functions of the church that are important. The first one is this: community. Community. The Bible is bookended with perfect utopian community. Do you know that? In the book of Revelation, all right, Revelation 21, we have Jesus dwelling with his people. He is, their, he is their God and they are his people and he will wipe every tear from their eye. And everything that has torn apart community for thousands and thousands of years, God will reconcile. Hate, bitterness, injustice, all the things that tear apart community, God will make right again. And he will wipe every tear from our eye and we will dwell with him forever. 
that is your future. If you call yourself a believer, that's your future, church. That we will dwell with him forever. So if you don't like the person next to you, you better get to liking them. Because you spend a lot of time with them. All right? Eternity. We're going to spend together in perfect community. But the Bible, again, is, is bookended. We find perfect community, not just in Revelation, what we're headed towards, our future, but also how we begin. Look at Genesis chapter 2. You can, it'll be up here on the screen. Genesis chapter 2, verse 19 says this. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So Adam's first job was what? To name the animals, right? Adam was the first zoologist, right? So the, 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 the animals would come to, to Adam and he began to name them, you know, duck. Bat. Cat. Anybody here like cats? Maybe the Lord will save you tonight. <laughs> I hate cats, okay? They're from the devil. It's actually the Hebrew word for, for devil is cat. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but Adam begins to name the animals. And the reason he does this was because he was trying to find community. Right? God could have named the animals. Why did he tell Adam to name the animals? It was so Adam could find community, someone to live with, a helper that he could live life with. Why does he need community? Because he was created in the image of God. And God is three in one, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Live in perfect community from all of eternity past and all of eternity future. God did not create the earth because he was bored or because he was lonely. He had perfect community in the Trinity. But yet he created man in his image also for community. Inside of you, part of your DNA is that we desperately need community. And so Adam was trying to find community. And verse 20 says this, So the man gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. There's no helper. So what does God do? He takes a rib out of Adam. He creates Eve. And she becomes his helpmate. His helper. There was community there. And so here is God's design. In this perfect utopian world, God created without sin in the garden, consisted of Adam and Eve living in the garden in relationship with God. No boundaries, no restrictions, no guilt, no shame. Their nakedness um, demonstrated their openness and honesty with each other. Their exposure, if you will. Figuratively for us, obviously, not literally for us, right? That's what their nakedness gave them. Openness and honesty. I'm not going to hide anything from you. You're not going to hide anything from me. And this openness and honesty leads to something that we call intimacy. Now, the world has made intimacy a sexual term. It's not a sexual term. Intimacy means I'm not, I don't have to pretend in front of you. I don't have to act like I'm somebody else. I don't have to feel the need to impress you. And when we are intimate with someone, we experience a freedom with them that we don't experience with anybody else. In fact, most of you, anybody here have somebody they can be intimate with that knows you better than anybody else and you can tell them all your secrets, everything, and trust them? Anybody got somebody like that? Okay. That's a blessing from God. 
And for the most part, people who we are intimate with, we die for that person. That's how important that is to us. But openness and honesty leads to intimacy, which ultimately leads to deep, deep community. We find something deeply rooted in the heart of every human being is that there is a desire to know someone and to be known by someone. People can go through, listen, I've been in ministry for 15 years now. And I've seen people who have been ravaged by disease, who have had terrible heartbreak, who have been through some of the worst experiences in life. But if they have somebody, they don't lose hope. If they have somebody, they don't fall into despair and depression. But I've also seen the opposite of that. I've seen people who have, have everything in the world, right? who have everything you possibly want, money, health, wealth, but if they don't have somebody that they can be open and honest with, they will very quickly fall into depression and despair because we were created for community. So what happens after Adam sins? We remember? We know our Bible. What happens after Adam sins? What does he do? He gets scared. Oh, no. I've done something God told me not to do. Why did I do that? Right? So we get scared. And so when he sins, sin leads to fear. Fear leads to shame. And shame ultimately leads to what? What did Adam do? He went and hid. He isolated himself. Like God didn't even have to go get out of here. Like he did that himself. And this is the first lesson of the Bible. Listen, that sin ultimately leads to fear. Fear leads to shame. And shame leads to us isolating ourselves, not only from God, but from the world. The reason some of you isolate yourself and refuse to let people in your world is because you are afraid that you will not be accepted. Maybe it's because of, of shame over what you've done. Maybe a sin that you've committed. You're afraid people won't think that you're worthy. And maybe it's a sin in your life that keeps you isolated. Because you don't want anybody to know. If somebody gets too close, they may condemn you. And so you feel fear and you feel shame. And community just is not worth it to you. In fact, I believe that one of our greatest fears is that our attempt for intimacy will not be reciprocated by somebody else. That they'll reject us. And so what do we do? We play it off like, oh, I'm just not a people person. I don't need people. Liar. Yes, you do. We all need somebody. It is in our DNA. We are people, people. And we need at least somebody we can be open and honest with. So here's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to this earth not just to save you from hell, but to restore community. You say, Blake, how did he do that? When he came, he took our sin, bare, killed it on the cross, and gave us his righteousness. So when God sees us, you know what he sees? He doesn't see my sin. He doesn't see my shame. He doesn't see my guilt. 
He doesn't see my anger. He doesn't see my bitterness. You know what he sees? He sees the perfect blood of Jesus. And so he sees me as perfect and righteous. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, he sees you perfect and righteous. And so guess what I can do now? I can stand in front of God, open and honest. Why? Because he knows me anyways. I don't have to hide from him. He knows everything about me and he doesn't see me as sinful. He sees the perfect blood of Jesus. He sees me as righteous. So now guess what can happen again? Perfect community. It is restored. That openness and honesty, the intimacy, all of it has been restored with God. So now I can have an intimate relationship with God. It's not about rules. It's not about doing the right thing. It's about a relationship with Jesus. And when Jesus died, he allows me to stand before God, righteous, open, and honest. And guess what? In that, he creates a church where we reflect him and we become a place, we become a people where other people can come in and not have to fear being rejected. Why? Because God accepted us, we accept everybody else. Right? If God accepts me for who I am, all of us have, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So guess what? I can accept you for who you are. I can be open and honest with you. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to look at you and point my finger and say, hey, you shouldn't have done that. If God's accepted me, then we accept each other. And now openness and honesty is restored. And perfect community can happen again. So salvation is not just about me making a personal decision to go to heaven when I die. That's part of it. But it is about God through Jesus removing sin. And when he removes sin, he removes fear. Shame goes away. Intimacy and community can return. And we begin to practice here what he ultimately decide, designed for us to be for eternity. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's not just about saving you from sin. It's about giving you community. So community is part of the church. It's us being able to love one another and be open and honest with each other about where we are in life. The other function of the church is the church exists to equip. Is it equipping? Has an equipping function? Ephesians chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, real quickly, says this. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Why? To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in knowledge of the Son of God, becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The main idea of this text is Christ loves the church. And because Christ loves the church, he has gifted it with teachers and apostles and prophets for their good in order that it will be healthy and that it will grow and that it will flourish. And what we're going to find out in a minute is that he has given, listen, each one of you a gift of the Holy Spirit in order to use for the common good. And that gift is not meant to terminate on you. It is meant to be shared and for you to serve the body in whatever way God has gifted you. We'll say, Blake, I don't, I don't know how God has gifted me. Well, maybe you just haven't figured it out yet. But he has gifted each one of us with the gift of the Holy Spirit for the common good. 
And that gift is not meant to stop with you. If it stops with you, then it's not for the common good. It's meant to go. So we usually do one of two things with our gifts. We ignore it and say, well, I'm not good enough. God hadn't equipped me. I can't be a part of that. I don't really know how to do that. I just don't feel like I can use my gift. Or maybe I don't know my gift, so I just won't. So we ignore our gift. Or we elevate it in such a way where we say, hey, there's a that preacher, man. He, he can speak. So we elevate them to celebrity status. And when they fall, churches fall apart. Because we elevate a gift to where it shouldn't be. Maybe it's singing or music or a lot of the up here kind of things. And we elevate that gift to where it shouldn't be. When our gifts shouldn't be ignored or exalted, they should be used for what they were meant to be used for, and that is for the common good of the church. And so God has given each one a gift. Just let me read it to you so I'm not, you know I'm not lying to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 says this. Now to each one, say that with me, now to each Oh, man. Come on. Here we go. Now to the manifestation, which means the outpouring, the, the showing of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another, the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. And so he goes on to mention several gifts of the Spirit. And he gets down to verse 11 and he says this. He says, all these are the work of one and the same spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. So he says each one twice. Well, you know what the word each one means? Each one. It means what it says. That means you and you and you and you and you, 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 you. We do that, what, 14, 1,500 times in here. You, 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 you. You have been given a gift in order to be used for the common good. Like people talk about ministry. You know, each one of you are a minister of the gospel. You say, well, Blake, you're in ministry. No, no, you're in ministry. And people ask me that all the time. Blake, you know, when were you called into ministry? I'm like, when were you called into ministry? Like every one of us, so like there are not one or we've got some people from Life Point over here, some people from New Spring probably in the back, some, some people who are, who are on staff at churches. And you say, well, those are ministers. No, no, there, there are like 1,400 ministers in here. Every single one of us have a ministry. It's just time for us to quit ignoring our gift and get in the game. It's time for you to get off the sideline and get in the game. Football's about to start, yeah? Everybody ready for football season? Yes! Right, let's go! National champions, baby, let's do it. I can't wait. We got what, like, like eight days, nine days before we play? Georgia, the Bulldogs. Listen, uh, hey, I heard a bark. You stop it. Who barked? Call him out. Okay, form tackle that guy on the way out. <laughs> Football season is about to start. Do you know why? And practice started, I guess, a few weeks ago, right? So do you know why? I don't know if we have any football players in here, but, but, but practice started a few weeks ago. Do you know why they practice so hard? Because they play on Saturdays. If they didn't play on Saturdays, you think they'd want to practice? You're talking about practice, man. Practice. 
practice. Right? If they never played on Saturdays, practice will become a burden. Practice will become mundane and monotonous. It would get boring. And eventually the people who played football would quit if they didn't play on Saturday. Listen, if you are bored with Christianity, if you've come to Clemson and you're like, man, I'm finally, we're going to see some people excited about Christianity. Man, I, this whole Christianity thing's been, been boring and mundane the last four years. And during high school and middle school, well, I never got excited about Jesus. Maybe that's because you were practicing and not playing. Maybe it's time for you to get in the game. Maybe it's time for you to begin to use your gift. Maybe it's of leadership. Maybe it's of wisdom. Maybe it's of encouragement. Maybe it's of hospitality. Maybe, I don't know what your gift might be, but God has equipped each one of us for the common good. And the reason some of us have been bored or Christianity has been mundane is because we've been standing on the sidelines for 5, 10, 15 years. And it's time for you to use your gift for the common good of the church. Because your participation in the body of Christ is necessary for the maturation of the church. For your growth, for the growth of people around you, because that's what Paul talks about. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, I'm going to read it again. Listen to what it says. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Becoming mature. The point of the church is so that us together can grow in maturity together. As you become mature, not that you're already mature, but that you will become mature. This is the church firing on all cylinders. That the more we are together, the more mature and encouraging and loving and leading those who are younger, you have the more mature people who are leading those who are younger and building them up in the faith. This is why, this is why it's important, I think, to be in a local church while you're in college. Because when you're in common, you guys have small groups, and it's just everybody's the same age. You need to be around people who maybe are a couple of generations ahead of you, who can pour into you and love you. And teach you things that the college student that sits in your class with you may not be able to teach you. As we become mature. Um, I'm, I'm kind of in becoming, I'm in a different season of life. I'm transitioning right now. I'm 41 years old. Um, my wife over there, my son is here. He's 16 years old. Um, he can drive now, which is weird, Okay. Which, by the way, I, I thought that I wouldn't like that. But now that I've gotten over the whole worry thing, I love the fact that he can drive. Right? He can drive everywhere and do his own thing. But one of the things that me and my wife love is we love to, especially at our church, because we have a bunch of young couples having babies and we have all kinds of babies in the church. And I love to get them. I love to cuddle them and just love them so much. I love it. But you know what I also like to do? Hand that baby back to them. <laughs> I don't want to wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning. Like, I'm through with that. All that's coming for you. Get ready. Buckle up. One day. All right? But you know what I also love? I love when those young parents come to me and Roz, my wife, and they go, hey, we're really dealing with this, and we need some advice on how to, how to work through it. And we get to help. We get to encourage. We get to bring them along. And this is what the church is. 
the churches, those who are older, those who are more mature, raising up people who are younger in their faith to maturity in Christ. And the beautiful thing is you're never there. We never completely come to you. It never says you're finished, right? That, that I have somebody ahead of me that's encouraging me and bringing me along in my faith. Not pointing their finger at me and being like, hey, why'd you do that? But lovingly encourage those who are younger in their faith. It's kind of like a little baby. We don't, we don't fuss at babies when they're trying to walk, do we? I mean, when babies are walking, like their parents, when they're like one year old and they're, you know, doing the wobbly legs thing. Like if they fall, we don't go, idiot. <laughs> we don't do that. What do we do? We pick them up and we let them try again. And if they fall, we pick them up and we let them try again. And this is what the church is for. Us together as we refine and as we encourage and as we lead. And if you're not a part of that, then not only are you missing out on the growth that can come to make you more like Jesus, but other people are missing out on you pouring into them and bringing them up into maturity in Christ. It is a constant ladder of people that are coming. And if, and if you do not use your gift, if you do not use where you are in Christ to bring other people along, then it breaks the chain of that. It breaks this, this evangelism that happens within the church just by us encouraging one another. But we each have a part. This is last thing I'll tell you. Um, in that story, the first story we read about Peter and Jesus, Jesus asked Peter a question. And he said this. He said, who do you say I am? And Peter said, I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God. And Peter says, or sorry, Jesus says, on you, Peter, on Peter, I will build my church. You will now be called Peter. And on this rock, on this rock, I will build my church. There's an interesting thing about the words in that, in that sentence. In fact, can we bring it back up on the screen? Matthew chapter 18, verse 16. Can we bring it back up? There we are. Peter, his name, the Greek word there is Petros. All right, Petros, it actually means small rock. You see, for years, what I thought this first meant was that Jesus was going to build his church on Peter. A flawed man who actually just a couple of days later would let a three-year-old girl scare him into denying Jesus three times. So I always thought, hey, Jesus built his church on Peter, but... After you read this and you read it in context, you find out that's actually not true. Because he says, and on this rock, that word rock is the word Petra. So Peter means small rock. Petros means small rock. Pet, uh, rock, the word rock here, means Petra, which means an immovable rock. Something that can't be moving. Moving, that's not a word. Something that can't be moved. Something that is the cornerstone of our faith. What's he talking about? What did Peter just say? Peter says, I believe you are the Messiah, that you are the Lord. And Jesus says, that is right. 
And not on Peter, not on the man am I going to build my church, but on that confession, on the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what I'm going to build my church on. And I'm going to raise up people who believe that too and who will change this world because Jesus is the Messiah. And I've struggled with this. I've struggled with this and I've wrestled with this lately because I've had this thought that each one of you are unique and special in your own way. Each one of you brings something to the church that is special. But in the same vein, God's going to accomplish his purpose with or without you. So are we special and needed or are we replaceable? Yes. Both. What it is for us is it is a privilege. A privilege to have the small rock that we are thrown on the gospel, on the immovable stone that is Jesus Christ. He has called you out for community. He has called you out to be equipped and for us to love and encourage one another. So let's get in the game. Let's quit standing on the sideline. And let's get in the game. All right, let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, I believe that there are people in this room right now where Christianity has become boring. That it has lost its fervor. Lord, and I truly believe that the way that the reason that is is because we have been standing on the sideline too long, not working, not thriving for the gospel. So God, compel us by the Holy Spirit today, Lord. My words mean nothing without the Spirit. So I pray that now the Spirit of God will take this truth that we are built for community, that this church is built to equip us for the common good. God, you will take this truth and you will invade our heart with it. And that we will take a step toward one another or toward you to become an active part of what you're doing in our community and in our world. God, imagine, imagine what a church would look like where we all did our part. God, you're doing incredible things right now. You're doing incredible things in this world. Imagine what the church would be like if we all used what you have given us in order to see your kingdom grow. There wouldn't be enough seats in this building. There wouldn't be enough life groups. There wouldn't be enough small groups. There wouldn't be enough missions projects, God, for us to do, to accomplish if we would each do our part. God, you have made us for this. So God, if we have been sitting on the sideline, God, I pray that we will repent of that. And that you will teach us, even if maybe we don't know what our gift is, that you will teach us today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing and we're going to worship. As I said at the beginning of our service, there is a prayer room out there. There have been people praying for you while we've been in here that God would, would work. And I'm sure if you went back there and needed to pray with them, that you could do that. If you would like to come up here and pray, if you'd like to kneel down in your seat, 
and pray and respond. You're completely free to do that as we worship. Listen, if you need to talk to somebody, I know there are going to be, I think, some prayer team members around with, the, with wristbands on. If you need to, to go up to them and say, listen, I don't know what my gift is, but man, I want to I work. I want to I use who I am for the furtherment of the kingdom of God. I'm sure they would love to pray with you and talk with you and search with you. That's why God has given the church pastors and teachers and prophets in order to urge and encourage you to find your gift for the common good. And so let's respond tonight as we sing in a way that glorifies God. Let's stand.